Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I get to review the latest adaptation in Stephen King's works, uh, which is Mike Flanagan's Gerald's Game, which dropped um, Friday morning at midnight on Netflix. And it's been the, the talk of the town, so to speak. It is a, a worthy entry in the what people are, are calling the King Assance. I don't know if that's the appropriate term to be using. Again, that goes back to the McConaissance from a couple of years back when Matthew McConaughey blew up. Um, again, I, I would actually, if we were going to term this anything, I, I, I probably would call it something like the, the reign of the king. Uh, it, it's more appropriate for Stephen King's last name. Anyway, guys, um, I will definitely get to, to Gerald's game in a little bit, but, but first I just want to welcome everyone that might be tuning in uh, for the first time. I know that there's been an uptick in, in Stephen King interest with the release of It back uh, earlier this month. I've definitely seen uh, an increase in traffic on the site, so that's great, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for the support. Uh, new listeners, long-time listeners, thank you. Uh, so welcome for the first time for those of you who are joining me, and welcome back everybody else that has been listening and follows uh, the Stephen King cast closely. So uh, for those of you who are new, as I said at the beginning, this is one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. I'm flying solo. Um, I know that that's kind of a, you know in the world of podcasting, usually we, we like to uh, to, to seek out, um, you know, podcast uh, podcasts that, that 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 have some banter and and co-hosts. But when I envisioned the Stephen King cast, I just really wanted to 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 get my thoughts and, and have it be somewhat you know academic. Um, mission accomplished, according to uh, to some feedback that that I've gotten. Um, but you know, if if typically solo podcasts aren't your thing, just give this episode a shot. And if you don't like it, then I, I, I get it. I totally understand. Um, you do have a catalog of over 160-something episodes um, about all things Stephen King. So that's the, the benefit for anyone that's coming in new for the first time with these newer episodes is that for everyone that was following along way back when, you had to wait every week. But, but now you, you, anyone that's tuning in for the first time has... Every pretty much every single Stephen King uh, short story um, and novel and almost adaptation <clears throat> at their disposal that they can just you know you know pop on their channel and you know sync up to their their, their car speakers go for a ride and listen to, to to my thoughts so that is the the goal of the the Stephen King cast and when I came back to it after having taken a, a, a hiatus for a while I had envisioned that I would just go through all the short stories that I didn't get to the first time around. But because we are now living in the, the reign of the king, uh, it seems that every other week I am reviewing new things that Stephen King is putting out. Not necessarily books, but just just new works by Stephen King in the uh, multimedia format. So we had this summer, uh, we had The Dark Tower, and then It, of course, and now Gerald's Game. And then in October, in less than a month, I'll be able to review uh, 1922. So there's, and then of course we have Castle Rock coming at some point. So there's a lot of, it's a great time to be a Stephen King fan, which is fantastic. And so I know I, I received a lot of questions whether or not I would be reviewing Sleeping Beauties. I will be reviewing Sleeping Beauties. I just have to read Sleeping Beauties first. I went out on Tuesday um, to, 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 to pick it up. Um, so I was there the first day I came out to get it. I was so excited to start reading it. I haven't even cracked the book open yet. Um, life is pretty busy right now. 
because I, I don't know when I'm going to get around to it. I will get around to it, so be patient. I will definitely record my thoughts on Sleeping Beauties. I just have to, I have to read it first. Um, so for those of you who you know, wanted me to, to, to continue to, to stick with the, 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 in, within the realm of the novels and, and Stephen King's strength, which is the written work, then yes, I definitely will do that. And for those of you who don't know, Stephen King did just release a new novel, but not alone. He didn't do it alone. Uh, Stephen King released it with his son, Owen King. And I love these collaborations that he has with his kids. Um, you know, whether he's working with Joe Hill, which he has done before with some short stories, and then now with, with Owen King here with Sleeping Beauties. I, I'm very excited to see what the collaborations within his family looks like because we have seen him collaborate with others clearly throughout throughout his uh, his his reign as the king. Um, but, you know, most notably when it comes to uh, writing his, the I think his greatest collaboration was The Talisman in Black House, um, in which he introduced us and then continued to follow along the exploits of, of Jack Sawyer, who could flip between our world and the territories. And there is a long rumored uh, um, idea that he and Peter Straub are, are working on the uh, third talisman, which would be fantastic. So um, I'm hoping that that is more than a rumor. I hope that that is uh, an actuality, and I hope that we get to see that very, very soon, as I am a huge fan of both books. I know that Black House tends to get maligned a little bit more, probably because it is so different from The Talisman, but different or not, I don't think that different is bad. And in the case of Black House, I think that it is purposefully different to to really show how much Jack has changed since a child and, and the effects that the territories had on him. And if you want all of my thoughts on Black House, head on over to that episode um, because I really do love Black House and I'd love to see the, the continued adventures of, of Jack Sawyer. So guys, before I get any further, um, I do want to, to share a couple Stephen King tidbits, not necessarily huge news pieces, but tidbits. He and Owen King have been making the rounds while promoting Sleeping Beauties. And as they've made the rounds, they, uh, you know, Stephen King has fielded a, a number of interviews. Uh, he has talked about the, the, the failings of the Dark Tower. He basically admitted that it's just not palatable to anybody um, because the, the, the struggle was in, in finding a, the, the right script that would please hardcore fans, that would be able to condense the thousands and thousands of pages into a singular movie, um, but make it marketable to a, a mass audience, which is everything that everyone complained about the movie. It, by trying to make it appeal to everyone, it appealed to no one, and, and Stephen King pretty much admitted that. He did insinuate that the, uh, that the television show, which I don't think is going to happen, I don't care what anyone says, after I, I believe that the movie has seriously tainted the Dark Tower intellectual property. And I, 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 I don't know. It, on one hand, it, it, it tanked so badly in terms of just critical and box office um, categories. It just tanked. I can see that Sony just says, no, we're done with that. But at the same time, at the success of It, um, and then now the, just the buzz around Gerald's game, I can definitely also see, see them saying, well, you know, Stephen King is hot right now. Maybe we want to... Uh, to to continue to run with this Dark Tower thing. So actually, in any other time period, um, if it wasn't right now, if the Dark Tower had come out last year, uh, then I would say that they probably would consider it done. But there is a chance that it might stay might still stay alive as a television show with the success of it. Um, and like I said, the the buzz of Gerald's Game and 1922, which is which is starting to pick up some steam as well. 
But with all that said, what I was trying to say was <clears throat> Stephen King insinuated that the uh, television show might be a reboot. I don't know how much he's kind of kept abreast as to the development of, of the show or not, or if he was just... The, the term reboot gets thrown around so so matter-of-factly, um, and it becomes interchangeable with, with remakes, and it gets interchangeable with continuations. You know, I mean, when Twin Peaks The Return was coming out, a lot of people were calling it a reboot. It wasn't a reboot. You know, it was continuing where it left off. Um, so just because something new is coming or, or something old is coming back in a new way doesn't necessarily mean that it's a reboot. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, but I would love to see them be able to do The Dark Tower right and, you know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I mean, HBO is the, is, is, it's what everyone says. It's what, it's just where it should be. It should be on HBO because the Game of Thrones is going to be wrapping up. And, you know, I, I don't know if they have a show that's going to be that next level. And if the Dark Tower should be that show. And I would love to see them be able to do it right. And I don't necessarily mean violence and gore. I just mean do it right. So hopefully, you know, that they, they, they realize that they, to, that they should learn from their mistakes and go ahead with a television show that adapts the material property, properly. Stephen King also um, said that there is uh, currently work to bring The Stand and Salem's Lot back to life. So I, I guess CBS All Access is where we might see The Stand or Showtime, one of those two places. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I quite feel about that. I think that this, I, I, like I said before, with the the, the popularity of, of dystopian fiction and The Walking Dead, and we've seen these post-apocalyptic landscapes filled with monsters um, and an active threat. I don't know how exciting the stand will be for for modern audiences who are now used to the post-apocalyptic landscape. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if CBS is the right place for it. I, I, you know, but that's me being biased against CBS. So until I hear anything, I, I, I guess I really shouldn't form an opinion. And then Salem's Lot, you know, he said um, might be might be remade soon, which is great. That is a Salem's Lot is ripe for a remake. The, the last time that it was touched was in early 2000s on TNT in a very early 2000s uh, television movie. It's pretty rough. I didn't review it for the purposes of the podcast. Now that I'm on uh, Stephen King cast 2.0, I might. I might get around to it. Starred Rob Blow and uh, Donald Sutherland, I believe. Um, and uh, James Cromwell? Was he Father Callahan? So, I mean, it had a great cast, um, but it just reeked of early 2000s aesthetic pretty rough um Wecker Hauer Wecker Hauer was in it rocking a soul patch and uh so I would love to see um you know a big budget updated uh Salem slot in the wake of of it I, I definitely think that it can be done and uh you know I I've definitely put all my thoughts out there with Toby Hooper's rest in peace Toby Hooper uh, Toby Hooper's Salem slot and I have my issues with it but I also think that within that movie he gave us one of horror cinema's greatest moments with the boys at the window with the fog and the music it's just so so good and if they were to remake this movie i don't know if they would be able to top what he was able to create with with that particular moment so those are a couple adaptations that we come have coming down the road um i i know that also 
couple years ago, there was talk of a Cujo remake, but not just any Cujo. K, it, Cujo would be an acronym standing for like canine undercover joint operations or something like that. So yeah, let that sink in. Um, but if we get like a bonkers, uh, you know, monster dog movie, I'm, I'm kind of fine with it, I guess. Because um, we have Cujo, the regular movie, and if they want to do something different, something fun with it, you know, do it. Um, I know Akiva Goldsman is working on a Firestarter remake, which please don't make happen. There had been talk of making The Shop into a television show where an adult, uh, Charlie, is on the run still from The Shop, which would be great. Um, there is a insomnia virtual reality experience that is being built, which is very fitting for insomnia. And I know that a lot of people probably are scoffing right now, but I, I, I haven't really dabbled at all in any virtual reality um, console or Oculus or anything. But um, I, I can imagine that insomnia would be a great experience. So there, we're going to hear a lot more about Stephen King with the success of It!, with the um, what I imagine is going to be the success of Gerald's game, and we won't be able to measure that except um, what the critics are saying and what how it's trending on on Twitter. But but there's a lot of good buzz around Gerald's game. I think there's going to be a lot of good buzz around 1922. Right now, Stephen King is in, which means that we're only going to get more Stephen King works, um, Stephen King adaptations, and uh, for instance, um, N. What probably my favorite. Stephen King short story is being turned into a either television show or movie called Eight, and it takes the basic premise and merges it with It, in which young kids who find the those standing ring stones have to return to the place later on in life. I mean, come on. I mean, that's too much. Speaking of the popularity of It, there is a, a book um, by Dan Simmons, Summer of Night, which is very It-centric. Uh, and I, I like Summer of Night, and I think that's an appropriate follow-up to it if you liked it and want to read a story about summer and kids on bikes and dark evils that they have to confront, then, then Summer of Night is the book for you. That's being turned into a movie. So right now, it is a smash hit. The sequel will be coming out in 2019. No casting yet, but fingers crossed that we're going to get Jessica Chastain and Bill Hader. I would love to see that. So uh, stay tuned to the Stephen King cast for, for any and all updates for for uh, <clears throat> any Stephen King-related uh, projects. Now, with all of that said, guys, I have a very limited amount of time before my daughter wakes up, and I'm squeezing in this podcast episode, so I want to get straight to my review of Gerald's Game. And um, I saw Gerald's Game last night. I could not wait, and I realize that I have so much technology in my house, it's ridiculous. I went downstairs um, to watch it on, on the big screen um, that I have downstairs uh, using my, my you know, PS4 um, to, to access Netflix. But my Wi-Fi is kind of sucky right now, so it wasn't able to work. So then I went upstairs to watch it through my cable box, but my Netflix app on my cable box was not working. And then I um, tried pulling it up on my phone. Um, my phone was having issues. Finally, I, mean, I got it to, to work on my, on my Apple TV. Um, thankfully, I was able to, to, to see it. So for a, for a good hour there, I was getting really frustrated at the, the idea that I was not going to be able to watch Gerald's game last night, which would have really set me off because 
I just really wanted to watch this movie. Uh, the, 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 the trailers for it that I saw kind of hit me out of nowhere. This is a movie that I never thought was going to actually be made. I didn't think that this movie could be made. I uh, really had my doubts. But after I started seeing some footage about it, I, I realized that not only could this work, this could actually be good. And knowing that this was done by Mike Flanagan, who had given us Oculus, which is a fun, a fun um, you know, horror movie, and then last year he gave us Hush, I realized that this really could be a, a really solid adaptation. And knowing that this is kind of the movie for Mike Flanagan, that this is the movie that he's wanted to make since he read the book, then whenever you get that particular crossroads, then you kind of got to buckle down um, because when an artist's dreams and vision hit a, a crossroads, then then uh, then special things happen. And I think special things happened with, with Gerald's game. Before I give you my thoughts, let me read the Wikipedia summary so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Jesse and Gerald Burlingame prepare for a weekend away to try and save their marriage and sex life. Upon driving to the family lake house, Gerald almost hits a dog with Jesse's spots. Jesse suggests to try and find its owner due to it having a collar, though Gerald decides for them not to. The pair arrive at the lake house, and whilst Gerald takes a Viagra caplet, Okay, so this sentence already, it's cracking up. Whilst Gerald takes a Viagra caplet. Jesse calls out the dog with some steak. The dog finds its way to the house where Gerald spooks it upon walking up to Jesse. The steak is then left on the ground for the dog to eat, but not before leaving the front door open. Patting herself down in a new gown that she bought, Jesse removes a tag from it and places it on the shelf above the bed and then prepares herself on the bed for Gerald. He walks out of the closet with handcuffs in hand, where Gerald ties Jesse up willingly to the bedposts. Both excited over the thought of what happened next, Gerald takes another Viagra pill with water and leaves the glass of water on the shelf above the bed. Gerald begins to be rough with Jesse, and whilst she plays along, she begins to become uncomfortable by Gerald's behavior. Gerald goes too far and causes Jesse to panic and demand that he stops to uncuff her. The two ponder as to where their marriage is going, then Jesse asks Gerald to uncuff her again. Gerald plays with the idea and says, what if I won't? To which he begins to try and kiss her while she is still cuffed. Jesse bites his lip and he stops, but quickly after, Gerald feels something wrong. He grabs for his chest and he suffers a heart attack where he falls onto Jesse who freaks out for a moment. Jesse uses her legs to try and push him upright and wake him up, but instead he falls backwards to the bottom of the bed and then the floor. Jesse tries to break out of the cuffs and calls for Gerald to wake up, though after a minute she sees blood pouring out of Gerald's head. Jesse calls out for help, however no one can hear her. A few hours later, the sun is slowly beginning to set. Jesse lies there tired and weak when she hears a rustling outside the bedroom window. She calls out, though there is no answer, but soon she hears the sound of tiny footsteps walking toward the bedroom. The dog she tried to help earlier then walks into the room, who sniffs around for a moment and then around Gerald's body. Jesse tries to scare the dog away, though it does not work, and it takes a chunk out of Gerald's arm and eats it by the door. Jesse begins to cry, and then suddenly Gerald's hand slams onto the bed, where he then stands up. 
Jesse is thankful that he is alive, but when he complains about the dog, when Jesse looks over at it, he notices, she notices Gerald's body is still there on the floor, to which she realizes she is hallucinating. Gerald, still acting like himself, then begins to bring up memories from Jesse's perspective of things which happened between them. He then begins to explain Jesse's prior, assumption, prior assumptions in their weekend would be undisturbed by friends and family, and that there is no one around to hear her screams. Jesse tries it again to uh, pull her hands free from the cuff, which, where she miraculously she succeeds, and she breaks the left bedpost to free her left hand. As she begins to gloat to Gerald, she walks over to the door and tells her real self that it is easy to escape. The real Jessie, still trapped on the bed, then begins to hallucinate a version of herself that tries to help her escape the situation, though not before kicking up a memory when she was 12 years old, which Gerald begins to ask about. The hallucinations fade for a moment as Jessie watches the sun set fully. Jessie then realizes the phone on the bedside table and tries to reach it with her feet but fail. The hallucinations return where Gerald talks about how their sex life failed and how he needed Viagra to try and help it, that he tried to hide it for a while before Jesse caught him. Whilst. Whilst the, Vi the Viagra has brought nothing good, the hallucinogenic Jesse mentions the last time he took the pill was actually a good moment. Gerald then reenacts the scene which occurred hours earlier and that he took the pill and then placed a glass of water on the shelf above the bed. Realizing that she needs the water to stay alive, Jesse reaches up and pushes the end of the shelf to try and make the glass slide down to the slide. To the side. She succeeds and then grabs the glass, though cannot reach her mouth. The hallucinogenic Jesse tells her to put it back on the shelf to try again later. The dog, hungry again, goes for another chunk out of Gerald's body. The hallucinogenic Jesse tells the real Jesse to focus, where the hallucinogenic Gerald then makes appears on top of Jesse and comments on the gown she is wearing. Jessie then remembers the tag she left on the shelf and then reaches up to grab it. Using her left hand to turn into a makeshift straw, she then grabs the glass again and manages to drink out of it, though she puts the water and straw back on the shelf for later. Jessie's body then begins to crash, crash where she falls asleep. As Jessie sleeps, the dog wakes up and can hear footsteps walking up the hallway. It scares the dog, who runs out of the house. Jessie wakes up after she can hear the dog barking outside and scans the room. At first, she sees nothing out of the ordinary, then as her eyes adjust, she spots a figure standing in the corner of the room. The figure walks towards her and is revealed to be a man with odd posture and a horribly deformed face. He opens a box he is carrying and shows her trinkets, which he has collected. She closes her eyes and yells out, you're not real to him, where the hallucinatic Gerald then begins to claim that he is actually death waiting to take her. Out of nowhere, Gerald begins to call Jessie Mouse, where she then plays a memory in her head. In the memory, a total solar eclipse will soon occur. Jessie, 12 years old, arrives at the lake house with her parents and siblings. The family are due to go out on the lake to watch the eclipse. However, Jessie does not feel comfortable going out. After her mother, Sally, complains about this to her father, Tom, within Jessie's earshot, he agrees to stay with Jessie while the others go out on the lake. Jessie, sat on the bench by the lake, is joined by her father, who hands her a viewer for the eclipse. Tom then manages Jessie to sit on his lap, and as Jessie watches the clips through the viewer, she hears some strange noises coming from Tom, who is in fact masturbating over the thought of Jessie on his lap. Jessie, realizing what he's doing, is demanded to keep looking through the viewer while he finishes. Jessie then wakes up, still trapped on the bed, but in severe pain as the circulation was cut off from her hands while she slept. Jessie moves around to make the blood in her body flow and has another drink. Flies are now infesting Gerald's body, and the hallucinogenic Gerald returns to tease Jesse about the man in the corner, especially as there is a print on the floor with Gerald's blood in the shape of what looks like a boot. Jesse then states that she will count backwards from 10 and the hallucinations will stop, 
When she reaches one, another memory begins of Jesse in her bedroom, 12 years old. Tom walks in, ashamed for what he did. He mentions that he would need to tell Sally about this, but spins it in a way that Jesse suggests that they keep it a secret. Jesse and Tom then again, then again agree to never mention it again, not even to each other. Jesse wakes up during the day <clears throat> with the dog licking at her feet. She kicks it, which causes it to bite on her leg. After kicking it away, it then decides to take another bite out of Gerald's body. The hallucinogenic Gerald teases Jesse again about the man made of moonlight who he insists is death and wants her wedding ring. Jesse, realizing she is going to die, then hallucinates Tom next to her. She falls asleep again and finds herself dreaming of the eclipse. She then makes her way to the bedroom from when she was 12 and talks to her 12-year-old self who tries to make her see what she needs to do. Another memory occurs of the family around the dinner table, and as Sally asks how the eclipse was for Jesse and Tom, Jesse, realizing she would need to try and protect Sally's soon-to-be newborn child from Tom, accidentally crushes the glass in her hand, which then Tom bandages. Jesse has an epiphany and realizes what she needs to do, even though it will hurt and possibly kill her. After mustering her strength, Jesse grabs the glass from the shelf and pours the water out. She smashes the glass using the shelf and takes a shard of it, which she embeds in the shelf. She cuts it into her wrist and up her hand deep enough so that as she tries to pull her right arm from the cups, the skin peels back all the way up to her fingers. Fortunately, her hand is now free and she maneuvers around the bed with her left arm still cuffed. She grabs the phone with her feet, but it has no battery life. She then drags the bed to the closet where she grabs the key for the cups, though she has to use her teeth to open it due to her severely damaged hand. Now free, she goes over to the sink and drinks some water and wraps some sanitary towels around her damaged hand. She stumbles her way through the room trying to grab the car keys on a set of drawers, but she passes out next to Gerald's body. Jessie wakes up with the dog grabbing her bloodied hand and she slaps it away. She looks at Gerald's decomposing and gnawed into body, stands up and walks over to the car keys. Upon picking them up, the dog growls down the corridor then hides in the closet. Jessie stumbles towards the door where she spots the man made of moonlight. She walks over to him and gives him her wedding ring for his trinket box. The man just smiles to her as she makes it to her car. She begins to drive away, but not before she sees a hallucination of Gerald one more time. As she is driving away, being severely dehydrated, she slowly begins to pass out. As she passes out, she finds herself driving through her eclipse world, the man made of moonlight sitting in the back of the car, where she then believes he is really death coming to take her. He grabs her and whispers in her ear, Mouse. She then unintentionally slams the car into a tree, where a house's light turns on from residents hearing the crash. Jesse spots their flashlights and walks into their direction where she then passes out. Six months later, Jesse is alive where she needed three skin, skin grafts for her right hand, though she still struggles to write with it. She begins to write a letter to her 12-year-old self. It is revealed that she pretended to have amnesia over the whole, whole ordeal as Gerald's insurance paid out over his death. Jesse struggles to sleep at night as the man made of moonlight appears before her as she falls asleep. Jessie also starts a foundation for men and women who have fallen victim to sexual abuse and it is revealed that her wedding ring was never found back at the lake house. One day, Jessie is reading a newspaper where she sees the picture of a man named Raymond Andrew Jubair, or the man made of moonlight, who actually suffers from acromal... Ac I, I don't know. Raymond would break into crypts to steal their jewelry and then soon begin to kill people and take their noses, ears, and so forth. Fortunately for Jessie, it is revealed that Raymond began to do this only to men, which is why he did not harm her where she considers part of Gerald's defaced body uh, was of what Raymond cut away. The scene cuts to Jessie with her 12-year-old self in the eclipse dreaming, reading the letter aloud, where the older Jessie claims she deserves the sun. Jessie is then seen walking to a courtroom after Raymond was caught. 
She walks up the aisle and calls for his attention. Since being caught, Raymond has not spoken a single word to anybody, but upon seeing Jesse, he says, you're not real and you're only made of moonlight. He breaks out of his shackles, but is held down by police officers as they cuff him. Jesse walks up to him, seeing visions of both Gerald and Tom, and says to him, you're so much smaller than I remember. She walks out of the courtroom and down the road with the sun gleaming down on her. So I, the, the um, Wikipedia summary was basically as long as the movie itself. Jeez, uh, guys. Okay, so here are my thoughts on the movie. Um, after I managed to, to get my technology working to, to see it, um, I'm just going to give some, some running thoughts here. Right away, with the, the, the Sam Cooke music playing um, and the overhead shot of first Jesse getting ready and then Gerald getting ready, it is a, a, a strong introduction, especially for those you know in the know of, of what the, the, the story is all about. So to see Gerald packing, you know how this scene, this introduction is going to, to play out and just him getting the cuffs and how loving he is with these cuffs and laying them so perfectly on top of his clothes is a great way to start this movie. Um, and speaking of this movie, it is a gorgeous-looking movie. Uh, the, the cinematographer of this really elevates it. Um, it is everything about it, from the, the interiors of the lake house to the, the scenic stretches of road where Jesse and Gerald drive down to the amazing shots of the solar eclipse and the red world that young Jesse now lives in. All of this is a beautiful movie, whether it is shot in the daylight, during the eclipse, or the night scenes with the man made of moonlight, the giant from Twin Peaks, sorry, the fireman from Twin Peaks. Um, it, it's an incredible, incredible looking film. And... Uh, Mike Flanagan knows that it's going to be a good-looking movie. And what I like that he does so well in this movie is put. he knows that if it's going to be successful, he has to put us there with Jesse. So it is important for him to make sure that we, we're not going to be changing locations here, so we have to feel very comfortable, not comfortable because she's not comfortable, but familiar with this lake house. So there is a, a scene that is almost unnecessary but it works wonders just establishing the, the beauty of this place and the remote quality of this place when she gets out of the car and just walks along the beach and the camera follows her, soaking up the water and the sand and the trees. And it's setting a mood, and that mood is peace and tranquility and beauty, and all of that is going to be ripped from her as what is supposed to be a dream turns into an absolute nightmare. So I really appreciate the movie for shots like that. And before long, um, you know, we we get Gerald's game. We get the the what the 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 title of this movie and the the book before it is, and it is disturbing. Um, you know, I mean, even if you haven't read the book, just the way that it plays out with Jesse's hesitance of it and Bruce Greenwood's eagerness of it, um, it just starts to get worse and worse and worse. And first, you know, it is playful, but just... Um, it's not necessarily disturbing. It, it's almost embarrassing because you can tell that she's not into it and he doesn't quite understand it and 
then he just starts to care less and less and starts kind of lashing out at her. And it just, it's hard. It, it's, it, it, it's a hard scene to watch, but it is thoroughly engrossing because how often do you see this scene play out in movies? It is a very intimate scene between a husband and a wife um, with both of the actors in very vulnerable positions. Uh, Carla Gugino um, literally strapped to the bed um, almost wearing nothing, and Bruce Greenwood, just in his underwear, um, also wearing nothing. And I gotta say, um, when there is an, an older actor that is in that good shape, and I'm in the prime of my life, and I don't look half as good as that, it it just always makes me feel so bad about it. It's I call it the Scott Glenn syndrome. Whenever Scott Glenn shows up in a movie, um, and I'm like, come on. Like, the dude is, like, ridiculously ripped. And, like, I just kind of put her around at the gym. Anyway, um, Bruce Greenwood, good for you, dude. Good for you. Um, I hope that when I'm your age, I, I'm able to, to, to do that as well. Um, so the, the scene itself is... It, it's done really well. And, and Mike Flanagan knows that he has to make this scene land because this is the only time, really, that these two characters, while alive, are going to be able to give the audience the necessary information as to what led up here. Although, until that moment, I think that everything that you needed to know is in the moments of silence between them, in 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 Jesse's nervousness around him, and there's a hesitancy with her um, when it comes to her interactions with him. You can tell that this marriage has just fizzled out, and there's a lot of uncomfortableness between the two of them and you know you kind of admire the two of them for for giving it a shot if it hadn't taken such a dark dark turn um and so what and and i'll get to her different performances as well as his different performances in this but flanagan knows that he had to get two actors who are going to make it work both together and both apart from each other because it's basically a play um there's a limited cast, and this limited cast has to know exactly what they're doing. And these are two actors who know what they're doing. And watching them in the last moments of his life and in the last moments of their marriage, just have that marriage talk, I think that it was very effective. I thought it was very, very real. Um, and the entire time, and I'll talk about this later because he's good at this. Mike Flanagan is good at this. There is a ticking time bomb during that entire that entire scene, and that is Gerald's Viagra. We saw him take one, and then the second time when we see it, we said, oh, no, this isn't good. This is not good. And then as he's on top of her and she kicks him away, like he starts breathing heavily. It, it's not overacted at that moment, but he is having some physio, you know, physiological reaction um, to the point where when he starts grabbing his arm, it is hard to watch because that moment is going to happen. Gerald's going to die, and it's truly frightening when it happens. Um, and when he falls on top of her, it is now an established, iconic shot from overhead of the dead Gerald lying right on top of Jesse. And it... And here we go. We're off to the races. The, the real movie begins um, from here. So 
Um, we have the, the, the Viagra taking time bomb, which explodes Gerald's heart. Um, and then Jesse in complete disbelief of, of what happened and put him pushing, uh, her pushing him off the bed actually was a, 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 a brief moment of levity in this movie. And it's, it's a, it is an unrelenting, very lean, very, very mean movie. But when she has him up on her feet and she's trying to shake him with, with her feet and accidentally pushes him off the bed, it's, it's actually a, a pretty... Um, pretty fun movie, but darkly funny because I mean it's he's dead and he he rolls over with just lifelessness um, and just slams onto the floor with like just a bag of meat because at that point that's that's what he is and when she sees the blood pouring out of his his head that's just the that's just the kicker that she is in for it now uh, and then the dog shows up so earlier he had telegraphed that the dog would show up into the house with the, the open door we knew it was going to happen you're not going to introduce the dog without doing something with the dog but, but it's, it's it doesn't mean that's not effective it works really really well um, so when the dog shows up to start eating Gerald it is disturbing it is disgusting Jesse is so vulnerable you don't know what's going to happen there's an unknown quality with the dog the strength of this story rests on how many dangerous factors are lurking all around Jesse, um, both possibly active threats and passive threats. The biggest passive threat being time itself. She is in the middle of nowhere, and if she doesn't do something about it, then the um, passive nature of inactivity and not being found is going to be enough to kill her. But we have that dog who is a stray dog and already is getting ta- used to the taste of human flesh, albeit dead flesh, but flesh nevertheless. We don't know where this is going to lead, and of course, Jesse doesn't as well. Now, in the book, of course, we have different the different personalities. Personalities isn't a good word, but different the different thought processes, um, the different parts of Jesse's mind represented by different aspects of her personality, which then talk to her in this moment that she needs it the most. Um, so rather than having different variations of Jesse, the first that we get is Bruce Greenwood returning from the dead as Gerald. It's a good scene as detailed and described in detail in the Wikipedia summary. At first we think that it's Gerald coming back, but no, it's not Gerald. And it's not just not Gerald, all right? It's, it is her representation of Gerald. So the conversation that they wind up happening um, really shows that this isn't the ghost of Gerald. This is... Who is this her perceptions of who her husband had been in her mind, along with all of the questions? And this speaks to the strength of the story, both in the book and in the movie, um, that this movie about many things, about sexual assault, about um, a woman's ultimate triumph, um, having to be handcuffed, so to speak, in both literal and metaphoric ways in a man's world. Um, it's also about marriage. And it's about the secrets within a marriage and the questions of whether you truly know the person that, that you pledge your life to. And King will later go on to explore that in the darkest form possible in A Good Marriage, which unfortunately was adapted into a not-so-great movie, um, which I still believe, if it had been adapted properly, couldn't have been an, Oscar, an Oscar-winning uh, type of, of film. But just the, the conversation that she has with this version of Gerald that she is then you know, projecting you know, they, she discusses a, a conversation that the two of them had once had in which he told a very unsavory joke that was not, it was out of the blue for him. And so the, the question is now, was he just putting on a, an act for a client or 
was that really him deep, deep down? And he had suppressed it for so long. And then based on the fact that he wound up getting into rape fantasies, how much did she really know her husband, who now lies dead on the floor um, being eaten by a dog? So Bruce Greenwood does a good job at not just presenting himself as Gerald, but also presenting this, this, this version of Gerald um, in, in Jesse's mind. And then immediately after that, we get Jesse escaping. But of course, it's not really Jesse. It is, again, another projection of, of, of Jesse's thoughts in order to present to the audience someone besides Carlo Gugino, because that had always been the biggest stumbling block in, in making this movie. How do you make a movie that is so... It's such an internal narrative. It is you are locked within this character who... She herself is locked within this impossible situation. How do you translate that into an audiovisual format? And this is the answer. And they, uh, Mike Flanagan does a, a very admirable and successful job at giving her someone to bounce off of. And that someone is the um, projection of who she thinks her dead husband is and the projection of a stronger aspect of her personality who tells it bluntly, tells it like it is, and in this moment, in this interactions with this other version of Jesse shows exactly the acting range that Carlo Giugino has because it is so distinctly different from the version of Jesse that we have chained to the bed. Um, this one is strong. This one has had enough of Gerald and the life that they've been living, and she's tough, and she has bite to her, um, whereas the, the, the Jesse that is chained to the bed is... She wants to avoid the situation. She wants to go to sleep. She just wants it to be over. She is scared. She is panicked. And the other two that are talking to her in different ways are telling her that she doesn't have time to be panicked, that she has to do something. And most of that is coming from, from the strong version of Jesse. So the, the, the contrast between the two acting styles that Carla Gugino is giving us is, um, shows just how good of a job she's doing um, in this role. And it's very important. And Mike Flanagan found a fantastic lead actress to, to be able to pull this off. Then we get the water scene. So this is where he, he had set these, these moments up earlier in the film, and he begins paying them off, first with the, the, the Viagra tablet, then with the dog coming in. Now we get the water, which was so very clearly placed on the, the shelf above her. And it's these little moments of both um, conflict and victory that make this movie work so well. It's what made the book work. Um, and Mike Flanagan is able to to really make these very, very successful scenes. It is as tense as anything you're going to see um, in an action thriller, and yet it's simply a woman trying to get a drink of water. And it shows not just the, 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 the complete helplessness of her situation, but her ingenuity and the, the, how she is able to actually problem solve her way out of these situations. And each situation is getting increasingly more and more difficult for her. Um, and then we get a shot. So I, there are shots in this movie that are just, like I said, the, the, the movie itself is just beautiful to look at, but... Um, there are moments where the, the actors are so perfectly framed. I had mentioned that it, it functions like a play at times, but there's times that it is as beautiful as some of the shots are as beautiful as a painting. So there's a scene where like the, the adrenaline had coursed through her and then is, is ebbing away, leaving just exhaustion in its wake. And she has to, she has to pass out and you have the strong version of Jesse on one side and the, um, projection of, 
um, Gerald on the other side with dead Gerald in the foreground. I'm not sure if the dog is still there or not. And then Jesse just passes out with her arms in a Christ-like pose. And the two manifestations of her mind standing on either side of the bed looking down at her. And the camera pauses for a moment. And in that moment, you get the sense that these two manifestations are going to just watch out for her while she sleeps. And or they are going to just remain there still until she wakes up because they are her mind and they're not going to really exist or function if that mind is not awake. But regardless of the what these two versions of her are going to do or not do, it's a beautiful shot. And the, the, the movie is filled with moments like that. Um, <clears throat> and then we have where the movie starts to, it, you know, the, the, the movie itself is is thrilling in its, uh, in its situation, you know, with her just chained to the bed and she needs to get out. It's a thrilling situation. But don't forget that this comes from the mind of Stephen King who was able to take any situation and spin it into a realm of terror. And that terror comes very effectively at the hands of an able filmmaker who knows how to build up uh, tension and scares. With the coming of um, the man made of moonlight, Death, um, played by the fireman from, from Twin Peaks, who was the, uh, the space cowboy in the book. Just the, the, the tracking shot down the hall, the dog getting up, getting spooked. And whenever, whenever you have an animal freaking out about something that we can't see, there's almost nothing scarier than that. Um, so whenever my dogs start barking and I can't see what they're barking at, it, it creeps me out. So that happens here. And for this, this, this dog who is now used to human flesh, who probably could, uh, you know, handle itself to be, to be scared off by something that we can't see and we hear footsteps, that is just classic chills right there. Um, oh, it's so good. And then we get th- this fantastic scene where we aren't sure she wakes up and we aren't sure what she's seeing or not seeing. And even though I know what we're going to get here, and even though I know the actor who is playing this part, it's still, it's giving me goosebumps, just watching something possibly be standing in the corner. Am I sure? Am I, is there someone standing in that corner? I don't know. That, and that's, again, it goes back to some truly primal childhood fears of just the, the clothes hanging on the back of the closet door, the... You know, the chair in the corner of the room with your book bag on it might look like someone there. Is it someone there or is it just the book bag? You're never quite entirely sure, and that's what's happening with Jesse right now, except it's not clothes hanging on a closet door. It's not a book bag in the chair because it moves forward. And in that moment, it really, Mike Flanning is able to take your breath away. It's, it goes from creepy to really unsettlingly scary because they, they cast the right actor for this part, and the, he just looks... So creepy, just draped in shadow. Um, it's just, it's a great scene. And, and the fact that he is, you know, this monster figure here, it's perfect timing that as soon as this monster shows up, Gerald comes back to talk to her. But not only does he come back, he comes back different. He comes back with a shirt on. He crawls out from underneath the bed with a different shirt on. And it's a Gerald slash dad mashup timed by the arrival of a real monster. So it's all coming to a head. It's perfect timing. I just, 
that is a great harbinger. It's a great um, moment of foreshadowing of the, the truth of the monsters in, in Jesse's life. And without really stretching it out, Mike Flanagan just gives it to us. It is the, the, the flashback scene to the, the, the lake and the eclipse. Um, it's hard to watch, guys. Um, it, it, it's very, very hard. It's filmed very, very well. Um, and Mike Flanagan knows that he, to, this is a movie, this is Jesse's story. The movie might be called Gerald's Game, but it's Jesse's story. Um, and it's an effective title, you know, having it called Gerald's Game. It is a man's story, and it, the, the, the title is chaining the woman, even though it is her story, within the man's title, and she's able to break it. So it, it's, it's very ingenious, the fact that Stephen King decided to call it Gerald's Game. Anyway, um, we, Mike Flanagan knows that we have to sit there, we have to endure it with Jesse, and we do endure it, and it is hard, guys. It's, I don't really want to talk about it. It's just an awful scene. And it it is because of this scene that it, it comes down to me not really knowing whether or not I like this movie or not. I'm going to be flat on the record saying this is a really good movie, um, possibly a great movie, and one where all it's firing on all cylinders by a director, writer, who understands how to craft a story, knows how to direct his actors, know how to uh, create tone and mood and setting and conflict, and he's firing at the top of his game right now, you have actors who are firing at the top of their game right now. It is a incredibly well-crafted movie, just one that I'm not sure if I could say that I like um, because it is hard content. Much like Requiem for a Dream, Darren Aronofsky makes an incredible movie. I will never not say that Requiem for a Dream isn't a fantastic film. I'm just never going to watch it again in my life. I don't want to watch it. I don't like that movie. It's an incredible film, possibly one of the best films ever made in the last 25 years. I just don't happen to like it. Um, and because of the content of, of this um, movie, I, it might, this might fall into the category with me. So it's, this is where it is objectivity has to be separated from subjectivity, and I can acknowledge both. Regardless, um, it's done very well. It's just really, really hard to watch. And then Jesse wakes up in pain. Um, you know, she then processes what, uh, what she had um, just dreamt about with the, the, the ghosts of, of Gerald and Jesse and um, the, the projection of Gerald gets her to realize that if she does not get out, she's the, the, the man will come back, the, the boogeyman, the man made of moonlight will come back and she will die. And so now we have a very clear end of the story. She has to get out by the time he comes back. Um, and then after some more dad scenes, uh, we get a great image, a very disturbing image of, of the space cowboy just licking her foot. And it's just the dog, but just that quick image of she thinks it's the, the monster man um, licking her dog, it's creepy. And then she reunites with her child self in this eclipse world, and they have a, a conversation in which Jesse realizes what she has to do. And guys, this scene where she escapes... I mean, my wife and I, we were watching it last night, and as we're watching it, we're both, like, screaming at the television. Um, it, it is unbelievable the amount of gore that comes from such a quick, um, small body part. And it, it's interesting because, you know, you think of massive gore and pain with some larger, you know, I think my guts, you know, I, you, you don't really want anything to happen there. And um, 
you know, you think of zombie movies where guts are being pulled out and everything, but you never really think about how gory the hand can be. And the scene where you're watching just the meat of her muscles and tendons just being pulled and yanked through the cufflinks. Um, man, Flanagan just knows how to, he just knows how to do it. Like he knows, he puts us there every step of the way with Jesse. And it's, it's a, it's a really, really good scene. The blood is flying, splattering everywhere. Just it's, it's gross. And I wish that I had seen this movie in the theaters because I'm sure for anyone that saw in fantastic fest, the crowd probably was going insane during that scene. It's one of those, those times where the, the, the director is a conductor um, whipping up the audience into a, an orchestrated frenzy. And I imagine that that's what happens if, if that movie plays out in a, in a large audience. And then she's able to escape, but not before a confrontation with the, uh, the space cowboy, the man made of moonlight. Um, and this, I, hard take, okay? Possibly controversial one. But I don't know. I'm going to say that everything with the man made of moonlight, the space cowboy, the figure of death... Um, I think that everything with this character is scarier than anything in Andy Muschietti's It. Okay, two different types of scares, but everyone, but a lot of people are talking about how scary, how scary, how scary it is. I, I'm on record two episodes, uh, the last two episodes of the Stephen King cast, talking about how I don't find it scary. Um, it has scare jumps, but I just don't believe it has that lasting. Like you're gonna think about it for a while. The images of this character standing on the edge of the, the, the hallway, the other end, just there, okay? Um, and then him in the corner, and him at the edge of the bed, him in the back seat, him across the room in her apartment with the red um, eclipse eyes. These are, to me, truly terrifying. They, they are disturbing. They're unsettling. Um, there's an unknown quality. You know what Pennywise is going to do to you. You don't know what this character is going to do. You don't know even if this character is real or not. Um, so the, all of the scenes where she's facing off against this phantom boogeyman, incredibly effective, incredibly effective, and possibly the most effective scenes in what is a very, very effective movie, just based on effective choices and effective scenes left and right. She escapes. She crashes the car. And... Um, Here's where my criticisms of the movie come in. I wish that this is where the movie had ended. I haven't done any real um, readings of, of reviews. I know that the buzz had been positive um, when it was screened at Fantastic Fest last week. Um, but, and I, of, which is, makes me hesitant to actually speak out <laughs> against any aspect of the movie because it seems that the buzz is so positive and it's being flooded with just positive reviews. So I don't know if I am in the minority here or not, but last 10, 15 minutes, I don't know. Everything after the uh, crash seems to be the ending of a different movie entirely. It becomes in of itself a different movie entirely. What we had gotten was a very tight well-done thriller horror movie um, becomes the ending of what I would expect to see out of a Lifetime movie in which Jesse recounts what happens after she escapes from the house. And it is, uh, it's a scene in which she is narrating and uh, we get a lot of exposition and we get a lot of information thrown at us. But the word that I would use, unfortunately, is just cheesy. It does not live up or honor the movie that had come before it. 
and certainly we we find out that Jesse is is working towards a a um, a life of healing and strength and ownership, which is important. I just wish that it had been conveyed a different way. Now, if we were to have it be shown to us rather than be told to us, how do you do that effectively? Um, do you do it, you know, by by having her start the foundation, by having her go through the 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 operations? Um, I don't know. Do you see these scenes or not? Um, does it does it make for a much longer movie? Because one of the strengths of this movie is that it is so to the point, and it's just a shark. Um, there's no fat on it. It just moves quickly. But I think about Captain Phillips um, and the ending of Captain Phillips. And after the threat is over, spoiler alert for Captain Phillips, um, the ending sticks with me because as soon as Tom Hanks is out of danger, he just starts crying. And he's there and we know he's going to be okay. Um, But this moment of him just crying speaks so much as to who he is as a person um, that he's finally able to just like let go and, and, and be human and uh, not Tom Hanks, Captain Phillips. It is a wonderfully human moment. Um, and we are able to cry with him. You know, we are able to to let all of that go and just cry and have that emotional experience. And I have no doubt that when Jesse escapes that she will have, healing. I mean, she's gone through it. There's going to be trauma, no no doubt. But if it had been ended on just a, a, a moment of meditation, um, we would have been spared the, the narration, which I found to be a, a, a very big miscalculation that unfortunately leaves a, a sour taste in my mouth because the, the movie had been um, so savory so to speak. It had been a, a very exquisite um, top-of-the-line meal. Hey, it had been made from Kobe beef, and the, the ending is a McDonald's burger. I think that that's the, the best way of putting it. Um, and then we get the the scene in the courthouse where we, we learn the truth of the man made of moonlight. We realize that he is real. Jesse learns that he is real. And just like in the book, we get that showdown between the two of them. And it comes across as cheesy, unfortunately. I will say that how childlike and excited he is when he just lifts up his arms and breaks his cuff and says, you're not real. You're made of moonlight. It is, that is unsettling. Um, but it doesn't. It to me, it doesn't match the unsettling quality in the in the book where she is just a, she is in the audience and he spots her and just starts mocking her from across the room. There is a a threat and a disturbing quality there um, that isn't ma- that isn't matched here. This is this is creepy, but it it comes and it goes so quickly and it's lost within um, the. The rest of the narration, which just isn't really good, and the music choice at the end there, it just, it, it, I'm telling you, it just really feels like a Lifetime movie. And she walks out of the courtroom, she puts on her sunglasses, and strolls down the middle of the street. Um, I, I just, it just feels like a different movie. The only thing that I like is the visual of the eclipse leaving the sun. It, it, it's a cool moment. Yes, that, that moment shows us the life that she is going to live, that she's going to be, as much as anyone can be in her situation, okay. 
But unfortunately, that ending, I, I believe, really knocks the movie down, which is, I don't even like saying, because so the, the movie, the, the word that keeps coming back is just effective. It's a strong movie in all aspects, in terms of the effects, in terms of the acting, in terms of especially the direction and the writing. It's just, it's a strong, solid movie worthy of your time. Um, like I said, it is a movie that, you know, has very, very challenging content. So um, people that have been the recipients of sexual abuse might have a very, very hard time watching this movie. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard sit at times, um, but, uh, but it is, it, you cannot argue that it isn't masterfully done masterfully done. I just don't know if I'll ever see it again. That's the thing, um, because it is so, it is so hard to watch. Um, but from the, you know, aside from the ending, the, the ending is the only major issue, you know, with the movie and whatever, it's the ending. You know, you can't judge a movie or a show or anything based on the ending. Um, but everything leading up to that moment was, was really, really strong. So like I had said earlier, you know, one of, you know, Mike Flanagan's strengths is that he, He's able to set up these moments that are going to have these payoffs, whether it be the, the Viagra, whether it, whether it be the, the opening the door or the water above the bed, um, the keys in the bathroom, uh, or even the, the, the ghost version of Gerald going over the timeline with her where she has to start to figure out how long they've been there, how long, how much better life the, the phone has, whether or not the phone's been charged, you know, when the people came to clean the house, when the, the neighbors are going to be showing up. It really starts to, to give us the parameters of the movie so we're working within very solid time frames. It's not just about her being chained to the bed. It's about her chained to the bed with rules set in place um, based on these plot points and these, these moments um, and objects and concepts that are going to create more tension. And that's the real strength um, of, of this movie. Okay, guys. Um, with all of that said, um, like, like, I, like I just said, Go watch that movie. Go watch it. It's on Netflix. Everyone has Netflix. Everyone in the world has Netflix. There's no reason to not watch this movie um, because we are living... The whole purpose of the Stephen King cast was because I started the Stephen King cast at a time where people weren't talking that much about Stephen King anymore. And right now we have entered the, 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 the new reign of the King, uh, TM. So make sure that, that you go out to, to, to be a part of this cultural conversation about Stephen King. I know that you all went out and saw it. Some of you might not go see Gerald's Game because it doesn't have the, the iconic clown because maybe you didn't you know, read the book when it came out, but you were familiar with the 1990 It miniseries. Um, but if you have watched It and you are getting back into Stephen King or getting into Stephen King for the first time, you should do yourself a favor and watch Gerald's Game because it is a very strong entry uh, into the adapted works of Stephen King. And in next year or so, after we have more and more adaptations, adaptations, I might uh, redo my top 10 list of Stephen King movies. I mean, top 10 lists anyway probably should get redone um, every now and then because it is hard to create a completely objective top 10 list. And even when I made the top 10 lists that I did um, after I finished the, the, the original mission statement of going through all of his works, I, uh, I did blur the line between um, favorite and best. 
Um, I did really, you know, blur the line between objective and subjective. So, you know, maybe again, I, I can go back and, and create a favorites list and an objectives list, a favorites and a best lists. So, so with all that said, there are some Easter eggs here. Um, that are very, very exciting. So that's another thing. Mike Flanagan is a Stephen King fan, and it shows. Now, he doesn't ram the Easter eggs down our throats um, the, the way that uh, they did with The Dark Tower, um, but the, the, the Easter eggs that we get function very well. So when we see a, a possibly dangerous dog, we all refer to that dog as Cujo. So when Bruce Greenwood refers to the dog as Cujo, it makes perfect sense, and it functions as, as a nice Easter egg. But the one I think that gets most of us is the way he manages to slip in the Dark Tower reference. It is so, so slick. Just how Bruce Greenwood is talking about the inevitability of death. And he just says, all things serve the beam. And then he continues. He doesn't dwell on it. There's no dong or anything. It is just a great little reference to the Dark Tower there. All things serve the beam. But the one that I think that I am most enamored with, the one that didn't need to happen, um, but the one for that really shows how much of a fan Mike Flanagan is to the book and to Stephen King, is the Dolores Claiborne uh, reference. Um, the fact that he acknowledges that Jesse had a dream in which there was a woman standing over the well during an eclipse is awesome. I had a giant smile on my face as that happened because it didn't need to happen. And with rights and the fact that there's not going to be any narrative payoff there, um, it was unnecessary. You could see, you could argue that it was unnecessary and therefore probably wouldn't make it into the, into the movie. I didn't expect it to. I didn't expect any connection to Dolores Claiborne the way that the, the books had the, the connection to Dolores Claiborne. But, um, but hearing Jesse talk about that really showed how much of a fan Mike Flanagan is to give us that connection to the companion book of of Gerald's Game. Because so for those of you who don't know, Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne, they were a one-two punch that came out the same year. They're two novels from the, the female perspective that um, showed two women overcoming uh, abuse in their lives both times during uh, um, the, the, the solar eclipse. And Jesse, as a child, of course, endured the, uh, the abuse during the solar eclipse. At the same time, Dolores Claiborne was ending the abuse during the, the, the solar eclipse. And this, this pass-off between the two of them, um, they give each other strength. Um, the, 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 the image of the girl gives the woman strength. And then later the image of the woman, um, gives Jesse the adult strength to, to continue. So they, they're able to empower each other without ever knowing each other, without ever one, without ever really truly knowing if the other one is real or it was just a hallucination in that moment. Um, and we don't get a, in the Dolores Claiborne movie, we don't get a reference to, to Gerald's game, nor did we need to. Um, but here, with Dolores Claiborne being a movie that has already been made um, and people being more aware of that Stephen King adaptation and that name played by Academy Award-winning actress and Stephen King alum Kathy Bates, 
it um, it definitely works on on a number of levels um, to have that referenced um, to to Dolores Claiborne. So I was very very happy to to see that. So so it was it was definitely just a well done movie and a well done movie made by a Stephen King fan, and it shows. Now Mike Flanagan, I do believe, has uh, the world in the palm of his hand. And I'm really excited to see what he has in store next. Um, I would love for him to continue him uh, making Stephen King movies. I don't know what um, he would be interested in. I, I know that this was his baby. This is what he had envisioned. Um, and he was more than successful in, in making it happen. So I, I, I am very curious and very excited at the prospect of him continuing to adapt Stephen King because he gets it. He understands the Stephen King sensibilities and knows how to take those sensibilities and translate them appropriately um, into an audiovisual format because a lot of people, as we've seen over the years, don't know how to, to make the Stephen King dialogue come alive or the, the Stephen King uh, just little idiosyncr- idiosyncrasies of his characters um, come to life. But he, he gets it. He has a strong command of his understanding of Stephen King and he has a strong command of, of the, the medium of, of both writing and directing himself. So he is a, a force to be reckoned with, um, and with only three movies under his belt, these are he's three for three. It's a very, very strong three for three. So um, right now he has all of my confidence, and I look forward to seeing what he has next. So um, in terms of what is next for the Stephen King cast, um, I'm not quite sure. I might um, do an interview, or I might um, dip back into... Um, the, the world of Night Shift and review one of the many um, adaptations that are out there, whether it be uh, Maximum Overdrive or The Lawnmower Man, or I think that I, I don't even remember if I, if I did The Mangler. I think I did The Mangler, but um, if I don't have an interview, I'll probably review uh, one of those movies and, and provide some updates on, on Stephen King news because uh, there's definitely some Stephen King uh, news stories that are percolating out there, and I'll go into a little bit more detail about Stephen King adaptations that, that should be coming our way. I know that Slash Film uh, did a, a breakdown of, of what to expect over the next couple of years, so maybe I'll... I'll kind of head into to, to that territory along with the review. So, guys, if you have not done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com on all of your thoughts about the, the latest It movie, you know, what you would like to see adapted next, your thoughts on Gerald's game, anything having to do with Stephen King, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com, and I'll read your your, your stuff on the your email on the air. I can't do it without you guys. And... Um, if you have a few minutes on your hands, an, uh, an iTunes review would help me out in ways that you you have no idea. Um, we are living in um, a Stephen King... Uh, it's a time to be a Stephen King fan right now. There are more and more Stephen King podcasts coming up, and I want to make sure that my, that my podcast is always towards the top. And one way of doing that is a subscription to iTunes and a review on iTunes. So if you have a minute on your hand and you listen to the Stephen King cast, just... Take a minute, say a couple nice things, uh, leave a five-star review, and um, you will really be helping out um, this podcast. So thank you for that, Um, and may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. You treat your eyes, but you stay.